What guanawaradu sewa guego? Greetings, love, and respect from me to all of you, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. I'm Gustosara Guate Palette Moore, a Ganyangehaga or Mohawk, citizens from Six Nations of the Grand River, Haudenosaunee Territory. Today's program is a special episode. Instead of regular programming, please enjoy our episode of the Anti-Standylion podcast. We are a media organization focused on revitalizing our communities through stories of land, language, and relationships. Enjoy and listen to your aunties. What Guanawaradu Sewa Guego? On this edition of the Auntie's Dandelion, we visit with emergent auntie Nigarunya'a Don Martin, who is Gonyungehaga or Mohawk from Six Nations of the Grand River, Lodinoshoni Territory, and who recently won the title of Miss Six Nations. Woohoo! Nigarunya'a is a two spirit culture and language carrier, a teacher, and a farmer who honors the foundations of the feminine. We're the strength. We're like the backbone of all of creation. Of all the people. If there was no Jonathanism or no life givers, uh, there would be no people today. Again, Istaha, that's my power, that's my strength, that's my mother, that's my auntie. Yeah. That's kind of how I I understand it and it's not even a gendered thing really when you when you look at it. That's my power. During our visit, we discussed Nigaranya's relationship with the beauty and trauma of her community and family, and how the power of our Mohawk language, through her father's influence, has become her support and her guide. And that's what he would talk about, is vibration and energy. That that word don't live on the paper. That world don't live in the textbook. That word only lives with us and our being and our energy and our voice and our breath to make it come into existence. We are Yeti Nistaha Nedegarunyaganare, the Auntie's Dandelion. We're a media collective focused on revitalizing our communities through stories of land, language, and relationships. We are thrilled to say Nyawa, which means thank you in Mohawk, to our friends at the Indigenous Screen Office of Canada, Unkak de Yunkiwista Genha, who are funding our podcast for the coming year. So make some tea, get comfortable, and take some time to listen to your aunties. Sega. Sega. Oh, Yoyana Raje. Yawa. Ewadaga Asada de Nadu. In Ganyange Hadanu Johansa. Yeah, Awada. Uh huh. The audience doesn't understand <laughs> Most of them, anyway. Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Don Martin. I'm from Six Nations Grand River Territory, Mohawk Bear Clan. I'm 27 years old, and I'm a teacher and a language student and language teacher at Skonlihuzikawa, the Everlasting Tree School. Which is an immersion school, right? Yeah. At Six Nations? Yeah. Waldorf-inspired Haudenosaunee immersion. Mm-hmm. Mohawk immersion school. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ezo Jiwagatsununi? 
Gan Idues, Umawanizrade. I'm so happy to be here with you. And it's really funny because even though we spent three years together in language immersion, we mostly were speaking Mohawk badly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not really getting to, you know, yeah. speak in any fluid way. It was just like, you know, halting. And, and now we're on the other side of that. So that's yeah. awesome. We can start with this idea of, you know, we are the auntie's dandelion. And I feel like you're just such an emergent auntie. Yeah. And what do, what what is the concept of aunties to you in our culture, Six Nations and also just Ongwehongwe in general? What does that mean to you? I thought that might... <laughs> I thought you might ask me that. Well, I've been, so I guess part of my introduction, I should, sometimes I include it, sometimes I don't, but I do identify, I say, or so I'm weird, I'm odd, I'm different. <laughs> I have a pattern, I have a way about myself and identify as a two-spirit person. Mm-hmm. So within my language journey, and just my upbringing in community, I was born and raised in community and didn't come out and really accept my two-spirit identity until the last couple of years of my life, actually, until after I went through the immersion program. So I actually did, I was actually there for four years because I did the third year immersion. And a lot of that language has actually helped me in better understanding my roles and responsibilities in community, but then also allowing myself to really accept and understand who I am as a person. Hmm. So I I acknowledge my upbringing. I have a big family. I have 11 siblings, 24 nieces and nephews, hmm. a great nephew. Like I was put into that parent role really young. I had some trauma in my in my family. I did feel like, you know, I was parenting my parents for a part of my life as well. But I have really been thinking about this idea of auntie and uncle hmm. and mother and father in our in our in our language and in our cultural understanding for quite some time. So I'll say that I'm my auntie and I'm an uncle. Mm, um, nice. Mm-hmm. So I get a lot of people say we'll just say Easter. A lot of people will just say I get mm-hmm. I use bowls. But how that was told to me was that like all older women are all older Jonathanisas or, you know, the people who carry the water, the people who have the canoe. Hmm. We're we're the strength. We're like the backbone of all of creation of all the people. If there was no Jonathanisas or no life givers, there would be no people today. And so our word for Genisaha is really, it's, the way I translate it is that's my power. Like it's a possessive. It's not, it's not even a, it's not even a person to person relationship. It's a possessive relationship that, that is my power. My mother is my power, is my strength, is where I get, you know, all the will to live comes from her. And that could be Mother Earth or my birth mother, right? And so I usually say, like, I would use the word I get any staha as a identifier of myself mm. and I don't usually use Ista as much as like was that like a nickname kind of Ista mm-hmm. just like mummy mm-hmm. but again Istaha that's my power that's my strength that's my mother that's my auntie mm. that's kind of how I I understand it and it's not even a gendered thing really when you when you look at it it's that it's a possessive relationship that that's my strength that's my power 
And then dad, he lent me his life. But then uncle, I say like as a teacher, as someone who has been a role model in community or, you know, I've, I try to, I acknowledge all my teachers and all my people who've helped me throughout my life. But I, I was always aware at a very young age that I, I am and I could be or I will be in a position where other people may look to me for, for guidance or for help. And my mom always kind of told me, you know, you should try and be a role model. Like, we have a good family. Like, you, you have good teachings. You're raised in a way that was connected to community, to land, to culture. I mean, you should, you should always remember that. So I do acknowledge my parents and all that they kind of taught me in their, the way that they view life and how to live life, I guess. To, and that's what they always encouraged me was to really accept myself and figure out, you know, what my purpose is in life. And then uncle is Luganoha'a, is he takes care. Well, the way I, I translate it is, well, uh, I'm going to protect it. Mm. But one of my teachers told me he, he translates it to, he takes care of my mind. He protects my mind. And it's talking mm. about that. It's not that root word, Otnigurna, is not in that word. But that's how one of my teachers translated to me is mm -hmm. we call all older people, all older uncles and all older and that's like a respect thing. So and it keeps out. us connected and related, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so coming out in the last, I think I came out, I was 21 when I came out, I'm 27 now, but then learning language the last four years of my life. I'm like, yeah, I, I am someone who takes care of minds <laughs> and, you know, I'm a teacher and I've been in like a youth role, youth role model in the community. I guess I, I am Miss Six Nations right now. 20, 2022, right 2023. Yeah. Okay. We just have to go right there. <laughs> yeah. We're sitting with the Miss Six Nations. Yeah. And, and what does that mean? How did you get involved in that? Because, you know, it was, it surprised me and also just made me so happy yeah. that you did that. So what did that mean to you? Well, I guess, yeah, it meant a lot, but my journey to that actually started a while ago, actually. So I guess a lot of my youth, a lot of my teenage years was a lot of guidance from my parents and from my older, older people in my life, you know, just Remember who you are. Remember this genie and Gordy Hondos. Like we have teachings about being, you know, strayed from a path or having challenges or walking off a, a path that's not so good, but then always having chance to come back to this, you know, how we're supposed to live in, in love, in respect, in care mm. with everything around us. And so my parents, you know, that's, that's what they always said when I went to university. I was seven, I was only 17 when I went to university. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was pretty young. Right, mm. out of, right out of high school, my mom said, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no, she said, you have a chance. You can get funding. Go mm -hmm. and learn. But they, before I left, that's what he, they said is never forget who you are. Mm. And, you know, like you're representing the way I raised you as a parent and all your family and all your community. So you better, <laughs> you better be uh, no representing us in a good up. way. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm really grateful and really happy that I've had the support that I've had. I've always had 
I've always been involved in community. My parents, you know, they really brought myself and all my siblings into the community, volunteering, being involved with the Longhouse, with the powwow, with different community events. And even then, like I was really shy in my youth. And my dad said, I knew since I was eight years old, I wanted to be a teacher. I said, my dad was a language teacher. Like he would tell me stories and he would be sharing language and just tales from the past all the time. And like I was in grade seven or eight, I knew I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be a language speaker. And because of my dad, I kind of wanted to be a teacher as well. Like I, I thought that was really important. And when I was in high school, he says, you should take, I say, my English teacher told me I should be in public speaking. And he says, go take it 100%. I'll be good for you. He said, that will make you a better speaker, be able to speak in front of crowds. Mm. I was really shy and like really inward in my youth. Like, yeah, really introverted, didn't have a lot of friends. And he said, if you get into public speaking and you get coached, then that will help you not only be a speaker, but also help you in your teaching later in life. So, so I they, they had that vision for you too. Yeah. That was grade nine. Mm-hmm. I started. Wow. So all my high school, I did public speaking. And my family, we go around the powwow trail. My dad's Mohawk worker, been involved in some politics, you know, growing up in a community with Caledonia, Ganostado, Land Back Lane, but just really this sense of pride about being Mohawk. And I've always had that language in my life. Like, Mm -hmm. even though my dad's not a speaker today, he shared that language with me my whole life and shared me those teachings of those deeper connections and those words into how to live our life. It's not just something to talk about or something to do. It's you're living that way every single day and you're trying to, you know, it, it, it is an impact. It is, it's about your voice. It's about your energy. It's about everything's connected with those vibrations with that. That's the Hande had shared that in one, some podcasts. Mm-hmm. Gardana, Owana, Aana, mm-hmm. Asana. Asana. Mm-hmm. They're all related. It's all vibrations. And it's all voice. Mm. It's the voices of the people, vibrations from the past, echoes of the past. You know, we're all related. And we're all energy. So, yeah, we we traveled around and it was actually, I actually got into the Indian Defense League of America pageant first. We do the border crossing every year. Oh, yeah. In July. Maybe explain that a little bit. Yeah. So the border crossing happens. It was founded with the IDLE Association Indian Defense League of America. Mm. And that was way way back with Descahe Levi General, just after World War One, I, I believe. You know, we're looking at the League of Nations, the United Nations. There was the convention in Geneva, Switzerland, and it was about border rights. They're, you know, dividing up, dividing up the world, dividing it, you know, making their maps, whatever. We say, we, we cross these lands freely, you know. We didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Yeah. So Levi General Descahe, when he was fighting with the League of Nations or advocating for Iroquois rights to go across those lands in upper state New York, Ontario, Quebec area, both sides of Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, really that whole Great Lakes region and the Finger Lakes region that we can cross freely as Haudenosaunee, as Iroquois, as Ongohewe. And he actually ended up passing away at that time and it and he passed away in the states and they mm-hmm. had a really hard time to bring his body 
back over to Mm -hmm. Grand River. And so that's kind of how it happened. And that's, we've been doing the border crossing every year since Mm -hmm. even, even during COVID, it's been a little different in the last couple of years. We'll march from the state side to Canada side and then have a celebration on the Canada side. The next year we'll march from Canada side to the state side and have the celebration on the state side. I went to that every year and that was like something I look forward to and saw my dad was like every time we crossed the border, he would always say, you know, um, North American Indians. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even from Grand River right now. Yeah. I'm a North American Indian. I got, I got this whole North America. I can travel for freely. Turtle Island. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we're not doing no labels right now. So he's always say, or he speak Mohawk at the border too. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. And he's always saying Jay Trudy. That's, I knew that. I knew that word J Trudy since I was like seven or eight. Awesome. I said, what's that? Yeah. And because we went there all the time, like that's what I, that's how I grew up. We always went to the border crossing every year, my family. And my dad was Mohawk worker. He was really involved with Ganada village and working over there. Worked with the Hehande quite a bit. But yeah, so I went into the IDLA pageant. And it's just, you know, it's just like a role. Like it is just like mm. a, that when you hold that title that you acknowledge all that history, like you're your advocate. You can speak to that history. You can speak to our rights. You can speak to the changes in community. So I was probably, I was probably 17 or 18 when I did my first IDLA pageant. Man, you did a lot when you were 17. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 10 years later. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I think I ran two or three times with Mm. uh, IDLA. I didn't win. I got second runner up. So what do you have to do in these pageants? Most times it's like an impromptu question, Mm. an interview, like a stage walk, usually the the question is something concerning. Like for IDLA, it was about the Jade Treaty and and about that event of how it started. Mm -hmm. And for Six Nations, Six Nations, so in Ontario, it's all the fairs. So it's actually all about agriculture. Oh, cool. Yeah, so. And that's you all over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm a seed saver, <laughs> seed keeper, gardener. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Gentos. Yeah. So usually an interview, an impromptu question, some stage presence. For Six Nations, we had to do a traditional presentation. So I just spoke about, I just did um, some teachings on the language. I actually talked about those terms. Mm. Like, our, war- our men, our women, our warriors, our life givers, auntie, uncle, like I... Spoke about those roles and responsibilities and like trying to trying to live by them. I ran for Miss Six Nations pageant once and I didn't win the year that I aged out. So they actually just changed their age requirements. Mm-hmm. So actually all during COVID. Mm-hmm. So the year that I lost, I didn't run that next year. And then I was going to run the year after that. And then COVID happened. Mm-hmm. And then one of my roommate's families, actually, Elyria McKay, she was the title holder for that year. Okay. And she's the only Miss Six Nations that held it for two years. Because of COVID. But yeah, that first year COVID, yeah. it was, she, she was the only one that held it for two years. So then I aged out. And then this year, because of COVID, they changed the restrictions, I think, to 29 or 30. I don't know. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so you're back. <laughs> yeah. I ran again and I won it. Some good competition. Had some, it was really close competition, actually. They gave us our score sheets. Mm. All amazing youth and community, all the people who, who ran the fellow contestants. But yeah, it was like a progression, right? Like 10 years had passed wow. in that time of, you know, and all the skills that I gained, all the new, I, I would say I am way more confident since I've, 
really accepted and come out as two spirit accepted myself mm-hmm. like i i feel like there's a huge change like developmentally personally for myself and i think like that mystic nations title a part of that is is like the confidence and understanding of of you know a person people who really know themselves and really understand themselves i feel like those people are you know, some of the best role models we have in community or in society mm-hmm. is is that need to experience life, figure out life, you know, live through life to really figure out who you are and what you're doing. Well, and I do want to say like, what good and what Adam, because I've yeah. seen those changes in you and it does feel like you've resolved something within yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just so happy that the two spirit identity is part of that whole that you've been, that you've been bringing into focus. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm also really glad that Six Nations recognizes that, you know, because there is just like anywhere else, there's homophobia or two spirit phobia in even mm-hmm. our communities. And you're bold and sexy and out there and you know and uh and really not turning it into something that's just like more palatable for you you know what I mean like and and I'm proud of you and I'm proud of Six Nations for embracing Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. yeah and that's something so there's there's some shift that has happened like Mm -hmm. uh, one of my best friends is um you know part of the queer community too and he's a guy and we have these conversations often. We're both in we're both in the longhouse community, like we're both in the traditional community. And a lot of people do come to me and ask me those questions about, you know, where does third gender sit? Where does mm-hmm. two spirit sit? And I say, Well, it's not even about gender. Yeah. It's not nothing to do about gender. It's all about roles and responsibilities. And I've had people tell me too, like, you go where you think you need to go. You go where you think you can fulfill that role. So you got to know the actual meaning of these words, of these, of that house division. Right. And it's you, you decide that no one else can tell you. Only creator can tell you and he's not here right now. So yeah, <laughs> you decide and you make that decision of where you want to sit. Wow. Yes, so yeah, in the last three years too. So Six Nations, I came out last 21. So that would have been like. I don't know. I can't do math. <laughs> 2016, 2015. Yeah. I was just, I think I was in my third, fourth year university. I was going in a teacher's college. Yeah, it was around that time. And it was scary. Mm-hmm. It was a scary time. I, I honestly thought, you know, I thought maybe I would lose my parents. I thought maybe I would lose my siblings. I thought I'd get disowned by my whole family, by my whole community. That was a reality. 11 siblings, yeah. 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 It's a lot of loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a reality. So, yeah. like, I struggled with that for three, four years. Mm-hmm. And I, it was, it was the culture that helped me, really, mm-hmm. where it was like, I can do anything. If Sky Woman was one being and one woman mm-hmm. that had brought the whole rest of creation it was it was just her and she she fulfilled both those roles she sang and she danced those first dances she brought up 
her child, you know, by herself. But then also this, this, this idea that we're not only a physical being. I'm not only a physical body. I'm a spiritual being. I'm a celestial being. I'm an energy being. And that was something my dad had always told me. He's like, he's like, you're a star being like, and that's even scientifically, we are star beings. Like, so my dad, the way that he talked was always this idea that you're a spirit and your body's a vessel. Mm. Your body's carrying you through this lifetime. And growing up, well, my mom told me this story. I was, I was older and I didn't know what it meant until I was, I was probably 15. She told me this story. She told me my birth story. Mm. And my mom birthed seven kids. So I have 11 siblings, but my dad had another, another partner. Mm -hmm. For my mom's seven kids, she dreamt of every single one of them during the pregnancy. So my brother Joe came as a boy every single night for her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. My sister Melissa came as a girl every single night for her pregnancy. And she said with me that one day I would come as a boy. And one day I would come as a girl. And one day I'd come as a boy. And one day I'd come as a girl. Throughout her whole pregnancy. Whoa. I would, I, my spirit would come that way. So when I came out when I was 20, like I was, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 yeah. in the closet, figuring out my life, you know, rethinking my whole teachings and my whole life. You know, that this, that me accepting that was something for myself, something that I needed to do for myself. But at the same time, knowing that there's this gender division or that there's still this, you know, homophobia in community. Yeah. Lateral violence. Yeah. Lateral violence. Lateral violence, colonialism, mm-hmm. all that in community. And I like I witnessed queer people get shunned from the community. Yeah. Like I was seven, eight years old and I witnessed that. I was seven, eight years old. And I witnessed queer people getting discriminated and, you know, facing prejudice in community. And I feel like that did stunt me. That did that did keep me from really accepting and understanding my my identity, my gendered identity, my sexual identity and things like that. So I came back to community in 2018. Mm -hmm. So I was away 2013 to 2018 for university. And when I came back, you know, I, I had just came out, but, you know, I just came out just to my family, just to my, you know, and coming out is just so weird. You know, I don't got to broadcast it to the whole community. Right, right. But I felt like my two-spirit identity and my gendered identity is something that, you know, needs to be out there. But my sexual identity don't need to be talked about too much. Yeah. But it's a lot of people do mix those sexual sexuality and gender identities. They they mix those conversations a lot or they don't understand the difference between them. And so 2018, I came back to community and I got involved with Six Nations Ride for Pride. Mm-hmm. And so we had our first pride parade four years ago, I believe. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was just a Facebook post. Yo, I'm going to ride for Pride tomorrow. Anyone down? Get over here. <laughs> and that was Deha Ganerle, actually. Oh. And just a couple of random people got together. Wow. Mari, uh, a couple of allies, a couple of supporters, mm-hmm. uh, non-community members. Mm-hmm. And they made it happen. I feel like that first ride for Pride was like 50 people showed up just randomly. Facebook posts. Amazing. And then next year it was formalized. We got community funding. Mm-hmm. And it was an actual like established event. And then last year is we just formalized our organization to be Six Nations Pride Outreach. Awesome. There was a need. There was a lot of teachers coming at, coming to us, community workers coming to us, service providers coming to us. 
and saying, you know, we want you to talk, we want you to speak, that a lot of people in the community actually don't have the skills or understandings to talk about like queer and queer queer identities, two spirit identities, gender and sexuality. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of a shame that a lot of service providers and community and community workers don't have that skill set or yeah. don't don't have that understanding. So yeah, last June was our third ride for pride and our first paddle for pride. So we paddled the Grand River too. Paddled the Grand River one weekend. Next weekend we rode rode our trail. Awesome. But yeah, so we're kind of formalized now, Six Nations Pride Outreach. But we have these conversations all the time. So there was like, there's supposed to be like a youth coming out video. They interviewed different youth and their coming out stories. From our events in the summertime, they asked if we, we could have like ongoing support throughout the year. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, yeah, a lot of teachers asked for us to do presentations in the schools, in the classrooms. So talking with my friend... And like, he's, he's part of the Six Nations Pride Outreach as well. Where like a lot has changed. Mm. Even at, seems like it. Even coming out at 21 to 27 yeah. now, in the last five years, even a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. And during COVID too, they also had ceremonial, ceremony teachings mm-hmm. on Zoom online and they had it in person. And that was a couple different organizations and community had partnered to do that. But the, the knowledge keepers that they had brought to that event, the way that they're sharing their understandings of these roles was a trigger to someone in the audience. Mm. And then they actually brought me on the project for a little bit just to kind of have a conversation of how do we talk about two-spirit queer identities in the longhouse with these gendered divisions and that's what I said. It's not even gender. That's, that's how right. we do it. It's not gender. Yeah. So I said, you as a speaker, you as a language person, like you need to really understand that translation. That's right. And what you're perpetuating, that it's not the men's side and it's not the women's side. It's the people who have the split canoe mm-hmm. and the people who carry. When that's, I heard it's kind of different. So warrior, I heard three different translations. Mm-hmm. They carry the dirt, they carry the ochre, or they carry the peace. Right. So those like are the, Skana, or Skana, yeah. the ochre that they put on their face. Yeah. Yeah. Otskarna. Otskarna. Okay. Yeah. Otskarna. Skana. Mm-hmm. And Otgarna. So they carry the dirt, they carry the ochre, they carry the peace. It's all <laughs> it's all kind of the same story. It's all related. It's all, and it's all about responsibility too, right? Like figuring that part out is the main thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying. It has just really helped me understand those roles and responsibilities, but also reaffirm everything my dad has shared and taught with me my whole life as well. Like he, he stepped away from the Longhouse community at a young age in his 20s. He attended in his youth. You know, he was a language speaker. He was, he was actually one of seven, I believe, or one of six people in the community that started Mohawk in a community that we're just all English and even had French in the community at all the, all the numbered schools. Wow. And he was in his early twenties in the seventies and him and I think, I think seven others pushed for the language to be in like advocated. Is that and right? Demanded for it to be oh, I didn't in the that. schools. Yeah. yeah. Wow. If you go to the federal schools, well, OMSK, where I went, Oliver M. Smith School, mm-hmm. they had a plaque that had all those names written mm-hmm. of those people 
who demanded that. Like, they made it happen. So that was my dad. And he would always say, you know, he said, the voices, it's it's about the voices of your ancestors. It's not even about a word. It's about, and that's what he would talk about is vibration and energy. That that word don't live on the paper. That world don't live in the textbook. That word only lives with us and our being and our energy and our voice and our breath to make it come into existence. So that's how I grew up hearing my dad talk about the language my whole life. And he, like, he grew up in, my dad was raised by his grandparents and he had Mohawk and, and Gayakona in the household. He had a fluent, fluent grandfather in, and Gayakono and a fluent grandmother in Ganyangeha. Mm. And that's how he grew up. He, he grew up speaking Ganyangeha because he was with his, you know, grandma in the evening time or in, in the morning time helping out. And the other thing that we talk about a lot with the anti-standing line is this idea of original instructions and what those mean to people and how you access them. And the other thing that we haven't talked about with you as well is how you use your hands and you do, you talked a little bit about being a farmer and, but can you go into that more like that, the embodied side? Yeah, I feel like I've always had a connection to the land, always gardened. And my dad would tell me that too. He would say, you know, this land heals you. You take your shoes off, you go put your hands in the dirt, put your feet in the dirt and be with your mother. Like he would tell me those things as growing up. And I, I, you know, a lot of these teachings that they told me, I didn't really understand until a couple of years ago. That that was just some I heard, some that I grew up with. And when I went to university, I studied Indigenous studies and history, but I took a lot of Indigenous environmental courses. And in that, they also talk about these original instructions in the Indigenous Environmental Studies program, that this idea that everyone and everything in creation has a purpose. Everyone and everything in creation has an energy. And your energy, your vibrations, if you're, you know, not skana or, you know, not, not in a calm state or if you don't know how to carry yourself in a good way, if you don't know how to, you know, it's hard to try and be in balance all the time. But that's something that we're told that we have to work at until our last day, until our dying day is we're supposed to figure out this, this balance and figure out what, what seems right or what feels right to your own being. Because you as your own being, only you can decide what's right and what's wrong for you. And, and yes, that's, that's very different from this idea that I'm an individual and my ego and I deserve this. And can you talk about those differences? Because they're sometimes they're almost the same language, but they're a completely different concept from what exists in the overculture. Actually, I've seen this meme. I'll give credit to it. I don't know who made it, but they it said, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it said, when indigenous people hear our, our, mm-hmm. they feel inclusive. Mm-hmm. And when non-Indigenous people hear our, it's an inclusive or exclusive. Exclusive. It's exclusive, that it's a possessive. Oh my God. So that's the main difference. When I hear our, 
I'm thinking our whole community, our, our, our as whole of creation, our as whole as humanity, our responsibility, you know, our mother earth. But when they hear our, it's, it's because it's so individualistic, because it's, you know, Western indoctrinated, whatever they hear are and they hear possessive. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing that helped me the most. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That's it. Niti. Yeah. Yeah. So going to university too, Dan Longboat was really, really influential to me. Ascahandone Swamp was really influential to me. They're both, you know, taught and mentored by really prominent individuals within Haudenosaunee communities. Jake Swamp Gaha, Jake Thomas Gaha mm-hmm. was some of their teachers and they are my teachers. But he, Dan has a way of talking about, like, talking about this idea of diversity and not only you as an individual, you as a being, as a human being, are unique and have purpose and is needed in this time and space right here, right now, that these other beings in creation, all the ants, all the insects, all the bugs, all all the trees, all the shrubs, all the grasses, like a hundred different types of grasses, thousand different types of trees, thousand different types of insects, mm. they're all needed. And I was, when I was in university, I went to Trenton University and it was like really environmental focus. I used to teach at Fleming College as a professor in Indigenous Studies. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is about positionality, is about accountability, is about taking care of the environment too. So we look at, we look at power and privilege is something mm-hmm. we need to understand. Mm-hmm. That as Indigenous peoples, as, you know, statistically, you could say, you know, we don't have access to these things. There's injustice, there's inequity, inequality. We have to look at, you know, institutions and how they function and what, how are they being accountable to us? Mm-hmm. Like we have, we have power in using our individual beings to address change. So I did a lot of like, I was involved in a lot of like activism, social movements, political movements and, and university as well, like really took hold of like Standing Rock. Line three, all that was happening in university. Yeah, I think I was in third year university when Standing Rock happened in our culture and our teachings is prophecies. That we have prophecies of the world ending. We have prophecies of the eighth fire, of the youth rising, of this need for youth voices, for youth to be involved and to make these decisions that everything in that culture is about the youth, is about the next generations. And that's what I say. That's when I started teaching at Fleming was one thing that I I felt so strongly to share is that, you know, we can talk about the honorable harvest and we can talk about, you know, Robin Wall Kimmer, all these great academics, but what does it mean to live it? And what does it mean to have that reality? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be, you know, visually I look like a woman and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. For me to know those statistics, for me to live as a single female or a single, you know, two-spirit yeah. female identifying, I guess, people would, you know, look at me. Mm-hmm. That it's a reality that these atrocities or these tragedies or these, this trauma may happen out there. Mm-hmm. That it's That it's really a reality. And so when Standing Rock happened, it was really about water, you know, about oil rights. I did a lot of, I did some training with Indigenous Climate Action mm-hmm. as well. But all these understandings that the world is in crisis and we need to do something yesterday or the day before. And that's something that I, 
like, I don't know, some Haudenosaunee don't agree with it, but I like to say it as well. We, we, we say the Hadigung Sadunje is the faces yet to come. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they do say seven generations. I heard some Haudenosaunee say, you know, seven generations isn't really our thing, mm-hmm. but the faces yet to come is 100% our thing. Right. It's about future generations. Mm-hmm. And if you're not thinking about one generation, I'm hoping you're at least thinking about one generation ahead, but me, Mm-hmm. I'm going to think about and worry seven generations ahead. That's what, you know, I got these other teachers. That's what they told me. Seven generations ahead. I can't see it. I can't see seven generations ahead because I know so many environmental statistics and atrocities that have happened that it's not a possibility for me right now. Mm. So if it's not a possibility for me, then that means I got to do some type of work. I got to do something. I got to get going. I got to talk to people. I don't know. I got to figure out my purpose. Yeah. My role in this all that I'm, I'm a member. Like you, if you say you're Haudenosaunee, you better be doing some work for the Haudenosaunee. Mm-hmm. If you say you're Mohawk, you better be doing some work for the Mohawks. That, But that's how my parents raised me. Is that this idea that, you know, you, you're grateful for life. Be grateful for life. But also you got to do something with your life. Or you got to do something to honor this life. That's that's kind of what they say, you know, they really encouraged me to to explore, to try new things that I was really supported and going to like 20 million different workshops, 20 million different conferences, traveling all over the world to go speak at these conferences and interact with other, you know, knowledge keepers. I traveled across North America talking about GMOs, yeah. genetically modified organisms and the effect on soil, the effect on seeds. But that was my my parents, you know, I had so much support in doing that. So I say seven generations ahead, 300 years. Yeah. It's not possible for me because I got scientists telling me there's only 80 years of agrable soil. So Trent was a really great place for me to have access to those different knowledges, but then also learning from other nations as well. Like my favorite experience every year at Trent is in the summertime after, you know, we're graduating, we're getting ready for summer. Every springtime, the Cree aunties from up north, one of the workers there, she's from like, I think like Moose Factory, I don't know. Mm-hmm. She got family all over up north, but it would be her family. You know, they would, and they would pay them good. And that's one thing that I learned too, you know, honorariums, being compensated, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll do work, you know, I'll do work for free for community. Yeah. Other people, you know, if they got the money, it's a colonial institution. Right. You better be paying my Cree aunties. That's right. <laughs> so the Cree aunties would come with trucks full, like two, three, four trucks. I don't know. And they'd have it full of wild game, frozen deer or not deer, but they'd have, you know, small game. They would bring some big game, but just like not the whole moose or not the whole deer, but they would bring all the small game. And for a whole week, we would be in the teepee, you know, fleshing, plucking, getting, getting the bird, getting the goose and duck ready, getting the beaver ready, doing the beaver pelt every springtime for four years when I was at Trent. Got to be with the Korean Oh, my yeah. God. So Amazing. that was my first, like, I got to witness that. Like, I'm like, in my community, like, we don't have many people. There's, you know, we're so, we're indoctrinated and we're so central. Yeah. So Six Nations, Grand River, like, we got Niagara Falls, Hamilton, Toronto, yep. London, Buffalo, right. all within an hour vicinity. Mm-hmm. And so 
like I feel like because we're just outside of the GTA, there's not, there's a couple of different indigenous communities around us, but we're pretty much encircled around these like massive metropolitan. Yeah. Metropolitan. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're tanning, you're like brain tanning things. Yeah. Right. While you're trying. Making, <laughs> making baskets. And, and yeah. that's the thing too, is jumping, jumping into that. And like you said, not just talking about it, but actually doing it. And you made a beautiful gastola for our friend. And that was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So um, being Miss Six Nations and having the agricultural society, I was actually talking was one of them. His last name is Green. I forget his first name. But we're just chatting at the fair. And he, who's your family? And I say, <laughs> my dad is Cameron Martin from Bateman Line. My mom's Debbie Sue from New Credit. And he says, you know what? If it wasn't for your family and those square hills up on Bateman Line, Six Nations wouldn't exist. He says, your family and the square hills, all the Mohawks on the upper end, all the Mohawks near Brantford, Bateman Line, all those Mohawks up there were the ones who fed the whole community from that time of the 1700s to probably after, you know, World War II. Yeah. Yeah, until after we had, like, modern jobs. Yeah. After the Indian agent left, we're the ones feeding the community with corn. was, like, two, three families. All Mohawks on the And that was someone from the Farmers Association told me that. And it was nice to hear. That's like, amazing. Because I heard those stories from my dad, but it was nice to hear from someone else that yeah. acknowledged my family and the work that we do with the seeds. And so when I was at Trent as well, I got I got to be involved with this project. It was called the Flint Corn Community Project. And what that was, there was, I don't know, 90 land races of corn from 1700 Nishoni communities. They gathered corn seed in the 1980s. They put it in storage and they wanted to commercialize corn to have like modern food products like cereals and mm-hmm. chips and whatever else. They couldn't make it happen. They tried to ch- like our corn grows like foot and a half, two feet long. And the machinery that they had, the industrial machinery for farming is only for those cobs that only grow six inches yeah. and are only so, so wide. Right. So our kernels were too big. Our cobs were too long. They didn't work with those, that type of machinery to do full scale industrial farming. And then when I got involved with that project, so somehow it was the Indian Agricultural Project of Ontario had them. Somehow Trent University got in possession. They were able to store them properly. Mm-hmm. And then they forgot about them or the project just folded and these seeds were just. Hanging left around. there, yeah. hang, hanging around in the university. Oh my god! And it was a non-native woman, Pat. She was doing her masters on I don't know, seed, I don't know, seed selection. I don't know. And from her masters, she got access to those seeds, and she's non-native, and she said these need to go back to community. So she hooked up with Dan. Dan hooked up with me and Nikki Otten Brown. Yeah. yeah. So we're the two students chosen at Trent University to take care of these seeds. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. That's and, coming yeah. full circle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Dan Longboat hooked us up. Said, "I think these two, these two, you know, amazing individuals from community, one's from Tainanaga, one's from Six Nations. You let them work with them. So I got to work with these seeds for three summers. Yeah. And we grew them out. So seed saving, you know." They say you should 
replant your seed like you like it's it's hard for seed to grow after five years it's mm-hmm. like kind of the expiration right even if you store them properly right mm-hmm. so these seeds were in there for 25 30 years oh, in the freezer it was that yeah 2015 yep. maybe 2015 2016 2017 is when i think we worked with the seeds and they got put into storage in 19 1987 88 something like that gmos didn't weren't created until 1992 so they were put into storage before even the creation of gmos and then little time travelers yeah my god and then you know we did we did some testing some seed testing and they said we're we should we're we won't get more than 10 percent yield that's what they said they said, we'll get less than 10% yield because these seeds are 30 years old. We did a lot of ceremony. You know, we I got a lot. That was when I really got mentored on in the protocol of gardening was at that time I got to take care of those seeds. So Nikki helped me a lot as well. But this idea of how do you have a conversation and how do you get consent from Mother Earth before tearing into her body? Right. That was the protocol that we talked about. So then I was, you know, I was really taught on how do you open your garden? How do you close your garden? How do you talk to your seeds? How do you carry your seeds? How do you put away your seeds? Mm -hmm. How do you talk to the land? How do you even till? Like, really, we're not even supposed to till. Yeah, we're not supposed to till. We're not supposed to dig into that Mother Earth until you talk to her, until you let her know, this is the reason why I'm doing this. It's not just to dig into you just for fun. Right. It's for a purpose. And just to take and take. Yeah. 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 So that protocol of gardening, I feel like that time in my life, 2014, 15, 16, 17, maybe around that time was when I got into that practice mm. of Jeannie and Gordy Hodans, of original instructions. Mm-hmm. And at that time, too, is I, I was just starting to learn more language. And that was something that Skahandoni had really talked talk to me about. Well, even Dan, too, to some extent. But mm really influential is try and give your thanks every day, mm-hmm. every morning and every night that we're supposed to say, you know, I'm grateful for the new day. I'm like, no day is promised. Tomorrow's not promised to nobody. So we got to be thankful for today. And that was something that Scott Hundo, he asked me that. Do you give your thanks every day? <laughs> every day and every night, do you give your thanks? And, oh, no, I don't. Oh, man, I best get on that. So I, I, you know, I've been in that practice for seven years now, probably wow. seven years. Give it, trying to even some days I just say what's going to Yeah. Some days I just say Nyawa. Yeah. But I try to every day acknowledge that every morning and every night that holy heck I'm, I'm living and I'm here. And a part of my journey too was and the culture has helped me. Well, yeah, I'll go back a little bit. Part of that time in my life when I was figuring out who I was. There was some trauma in my life that had happened. But then also, I don't know if I came out before or after. Mm. But these things happened in my family. So mm-hmm. I'm okay talking about this. I share this a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I talk with my kids. And that's one thing that I, my own personal philosophy of teaching, I say has to concern the whole self, has to concern the emotional and all my professional teaching and all my professional jobs hasn't been connecting to that emotional. Mm-hmm. And even when I was at Queen's University, oh man, that was something else. But mm. that was one thing that they said, you know, you're, 
Your only job is to teach curriculum. Mm. Teaching is not therapeutic. <laughs> and that, that's what she told me. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> my, my whole culture said, guess what? In my culture, I'm the anti. In my culture, I'm anti to every little kid here. I'm anti. Yep. So I've been anti since I was seven years old. <laughs> so I'm anti. And if this kid needs a hug, if this kid needs, you know, yeah. whatever they need, I'm anti to that kid before I'm teacher to that kid. That's how I see it. Yeah. So if I'm that kid's anti before I'm that kid's teacher, I'm going to get them whatever they need to survive, to live that next day. So in part of my, in my youth, I had a brother pass away. I was seven years old. Mm. And from that, you know, it affected my whole family. But mm. when I said that I had to parent my parents, I was talking about my dad, mm -hmm. that that was something he really struggled with. That was, it wasn't my mother's son. It was my dad's son, mm. my mother's stepson. But that experience is like myself, my siblings, my parents, we all experience this event, this tragic event. But each one of us were affected differently. Each one of us has our own experiences. And that was something that I didn't understand until way later in life. That that's I had a lot of grief. I had a lot of anger. Yeah. And then my dad struggling, struggling to live, struggling with, you know, substance, alcoholism. Mm. I love my dad. I'm grateful he's still alive. It was his birthday yesterday. Oh, he's 71 years old. And I'm so, so grateful he's yeah. still alive. Yeah. But having to see that and yeah. grow through that, like that was my youth was, you know, watching my parents struggle to carry that grief. Yeah. To live through that grief. And when I was in depression, when I was learning language, actually, I was in my fourth year university. I had another brother pass away. Oh, they both passed away drug, drug related. Like I was in fourth year university. And that's why I say like, I was just crying. Like when I came out, like I didn't want to come out because I didn't want to accept myself. Yeah. And this gift of life is something that I just one day I just broke down crying. I was really depressed. I was really struggling. I was asking for help. And then I thought about my brother. I said, holy heck, my brother was only 21 years old when he passed. And I'm 22 years old now. Like, I didn't, I didn't, when I was a youth, when I was 12, 13, 14, I couldn't fathom past 20. I couldn't envision my life past 21. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm grateful to be 27 now. But in that struggle, in that period in, in that in my life, you know, that was just, I don't know. It was all those things added up and really just to make me the person I am today. Wow. So when I was struggling with depression, I still struggle with depression to some extent, but I know how to be in relationship with it. I know how to honor it and what it's teaching me, that I need to have deep rest, that I need to take some time for myself. That's right. I've only gotten those skills 10 years, <laughs> 10 years of, you know. You're doing better than a lot of people, figuring honestly. It out, yeah. Figuring it out. It is a skill. It yeah. only happens through experiencing. So these words, I'll share these words, depression. So the two words that I learned. So this is my understanding. I don't know if people can say that I'm wrong. I don't care. You can say that. I'm, call me out. Call me out. Give me some more teaching. Tell me out. Because I don't know everything. But what I do know, I'll try and talk about it. So we have two words. So one is we'll get any go. We'll get Nigo Hernando. My mind's hanging by a thread. Mm, mm -hmm. My mind's suspended. Dangling. It's mm -hmm. it's dangling. It's literally hanging by a thread. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that translation. My mind's hanging by a thread. That's what I would say is small D depression. 
And then what I say is big D depression mm-hmm. is also the same as grief. But some people may not say it's the same. Like some people would just use what getting Hernando is depressed. Mm-hmm. But I'll use the grieving and, the, and I say that's big D depression. So mm-hmm. my mind has now fallen from that string and it's scattered on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's shattered on the ground. It's laying all this. It fell from that string and it's scattered on the ground. That's why I say it's big D depression. Mm-hmm. And we got to pick up the pieces. We got to reassemble and we got to figure it out. We got to lift our minds back up. That's condolence. And so that's the same word that they use in condolence, actually. Is the people's whose mind has fallen is one side of the house. It's the other people on the other side of the house. The people's whose minds are strong. That they are supposed to help. Help the other side. So in all of this, in my depression and in my grief, like losing two brothers. You know, I lost a lot of friends. I lost a lot of, you know, in my youth. Just in that youth period, in my teens, like. I lost more than half my friends that I knew at that time. A lot of it was suicide. Some of it was drug and alcohol related, but a lot of it was suicide. And just a couple of years ago, actually, you know, I was, I had another depressive episode and I was crying out to creation. Where the heck's my help? That's what I was saying. Where the heck's my help? I said, all of our culture is about being in relationship to everyone else around us that we we are supposed to help each other like that's our only our only purpose help the earth help each other that's the only thing try and live in peace you know people can make it so complicated but i say you know just you just gotta do it for yourself or you just gotta figure it out for yourself so and and not everyone has that willpower not everyone has that understanding to Mm -hmm. do the work to do the work selflessly and that's what I would say is from from the way that I was raised, from the teachings that I was given and offered, um, and even just my life experiences have brought me to this understanding of where I am today. You can hear more episodes from the Auntie's Dandelion podcast and learn more about their media organization at theauntiesdandelion.com.